In the book of John, John 19, verse 35, uh, John wrote this, and he said, He who has seen and testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Don't you love that? John said, I was there. And just so you know, I'm telling the truth, and I know for a fact I'm telling the truth, and I'm telling you these things so that you would believe. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he said, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's a lot of things in this world that I don't know for sure of. I can't trust every word of the New York Times, and neither can you. I can't trust everything that's written uh, in every book, but there's one thing I know for certain, as certain as I'm standing here, I know every single word, and this is true. Every single... Luke said that you may know with certainty. People doubt a lot of things. There's a lot of people, oh, I'm agnostic, because I don't, I don't know if there is a God. There might be a God, Right? Amazes me the size of the universe, how it all just created itself, right? There's things that I'm uncertain of, but one thing I'm not uncertain of, everything written in the Scriptures is 100% infallibly true. And Luke, you know, he recognizes, Luke already knew that uh, Matthew and Mark were already written. John would be written later. The book of John would be written later. He already knew that Matthew and Mark were already written But Luke himself had run into so many believers uh, in his travels and had taken so many eyewitness accounts that the Holy Spirit says, now I want you to write an account as well. But Lord, there's already two written. Oh, don't worry, there'll be four when I'm done. Just like the legs of a chair, right? One, two, three, four. There would be four writings of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four would be particularly important in their own right. But Luke, according to the tradition, was a Gentile. Paul seems to confirm this in distinguishing Luke from those of the circumcision in Colossians chapter 4. Luke would be the only Gentile to author any books of the entirety of Scripture. In addition to the book of Luke, he also authored the book of Acts. Very likely it was a single work in two parts that begins with the birth of the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, then the birth and the life and the ministry of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and if you go all the way into Acts, all the way to the sending of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the establishment and the empowering of the church, and the ministries of Peter and Paul and other early saints, and then finishes ultimately with Paul in prison. That's where Acts finishes. But All of this, Luke wrote, and we believe, again, he wrote it in a two-part work, but essentially one single entity. Luke was a frequent companion of Paul, was referred to by Paul as a physician. And historians Eusebius and Jerome identify him as a native of Antioch, probably why Antioch is so prominent in the book of Acts as well. When we were in the book of Acts, you may remember that. Luke was well-educated in Greek culture, Uh, But if uh, indeed he was Gentile, as it certainly appears that he was, his understanding of the Old Testament or the Tanakh is extraordinary. That someone 
of a Gentile background would know the Scriptures like he did. No doubt his education and his scholarly approach and certainly his close relationship with the Apostle Paul would help him absorb a tremendous amount, but ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who would pour wisdom and truth and insight and bring him each eyewitness account necessary to complete this work. The book of Luke was written as a detailed historical account addressed to someone named Theopolis, uh, and includes a formal expression, most excellent. You might have saw that as we read, which is a title. This gives us a clue that this was uh, possibly written to a Gentile Roman official, but definitely it was written, without question it was written, to someone with with a significant level of wealth and position within Rome. Perhaps one of those who had turned to Christ in Caesar's household, which is mentioned in Philippians 4.22. We don't know that for certain, but it, it certainly could have been someone even related to Caesar. Now Luke had apparently collected the eyewitness accounts and testimony from a number of those, including the apostles, uh, who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Now beyond Theopolis, who it's addressed to, it seems without question that Luke had, under the power of the Holy Spirit, a larger audience in mind. He writes at the Theopolis, but he seems to be writing to the masses had a larger audience in mind, of both Jew and Gentile. It's very clear that when Luke writes, he's writing to both Jew and Gentile. He meticulously assembled a comprehensive account. As a matter of fact, almost all scholars believe that Luke is the most comprehensive of the four Gospels that's just invaluable to our understanding of the first coming of the Messiah and his astounding and compassionate ministry. We would be... With, uh, without a major treasure, without this book. Without Luke's gospel account, we would not know the parents or the miraculous events that surrounded the birth of John the Baptist. It's Luke that shares Mary's heartfelt song and prayer when she was pregnant with Jesus. He gives the glorious testimony of the shepherds, as well as Simeon and Anna in the temple related to the birth of Christ. As a physician, and I know this must have just really touched a nerve in Luke being a physician. Uh, Luke spends a tremendous amount, he documents more of the healing ministry than any other writer. He was particularly zeroed in on all the times that Jesus healed people of death and disease. Attesting to the power of prayer, and Jesus is a man of prayer, he recorded more of Jesus' prayers than any other writer. He pays particular attention to Jesus' love for Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus' ministry to reaching out to women, children, and the outcasts of society. This also really made an impression on Luke. Luke's writings have a paramount emphasis on the preaching of the good news that we now call what? The gospel. The term is used ten times in this gospel. It's only used once in all the other gospels, by the way. And as well as 15 additional times in the book of Acts. Luke loved the presentation of the gospel and that it would be preached around the world. Lastly, he devotes a full ten chapters to Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. Every stop on the way, he documents, well, we don't know if it's every stop, but each of the stops included in that ten chapter is all of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. Ten full chapters. And I believe 
this is because he's emphasizing that Jesus had an unflinching mission to go to the cross. Luke said there was nothing else on Jesus' mind but the joy set before him to go to the cross. And by the way, the more I study the Gospels, all four of them, the more amazed I am at their harmony and how they complement each other. You know that nobody but God could put these things together. Uh, every single facet. If one author doesn't mention it, the other one does. And I was thinking about this. This is actually, this, you know, God uses the Holy, through the Holy Spirit, He speaks and breathes into men to write what the Word of God uh, is ultimately going to be given because God knew before time and space what He would put in the Scriptures. But He also uses the personalities and the profession, like Luke being a physician, and uses kind of where their leanings are and just their personal likes or dislikes. And the Holy Spirit fuses all that for four definitive works that fit together perfectly. Perfectly. You ever bought something and the parts don't fit? Right? We've all done that. We bought things like, Dang, got it. This does not fit. Every other piece fits but this one. And back you go to the store, and oh, that's weird. That only happens once in a million times. In our house, it happens almost every time. But anyway, yeah, but the, the Gospels, they fit perfectly. But you, you and I, all of you went to, I should say all of you, but probably most of you, went to a Thanksgiving dinner with family. And I was thinking about this. The eyewitness accounts, the reason why, you know, some... Some of the people that mock the scriptures, these are your really smart professors at like Harvard Divinity School that mock the veracity of scriptures. And, you know, if they were all true, their stories would be the same. What a ridiculous thing to say. When I was at our Thanksgiving, uh, our family, the men, we were outside throwing the football. I have no idea what the women were talking about. No idea. I know they were having a cup of coffee, sitting in a group. If, they, if each of us told our eyewitness account of the day, they would not mention once throwing the football. I would not mention once what they were talking about. And yet it would all be inclusive of the exact same event, wouldn't it? The kids were upstairs playing something else. I have no idea what they're doing. Most parents don't. <laughs> they're at the kid table, they're upstairs, uh, place isn't burning down, everything's going okay, Right? Everyone would have their eyewitness account, same time frame, same two-hour block. Everyone tell what you did and say, you guys weren't even in the same place. There's no mention of football over here. There was no mention of this over here. There's no, but all of it was the same thing, and this is what God does with the four Gospels. Luke plays a very specific role, and God's saying, you're going to tell some things that John won't. And you're going to sell some things that Mark won't, and you're going to sell some things that Matthew won't, but all together will be one single story. And even still, some details will be left out, because John said at the end of John, if all the things that were told of Jesus were written, he supposed that all the books of the world couldn't contain it. So what we have is exactly what the Lord wants us to have. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, Faithful Seasons. Faithful seasons. And we're looking here at the opening of Luke's gospel where he specifically tells us about a couple by the name of Zacharias and Elizabeth. I've divided our text that we'll look at briefly this morning the pair, P A I R, the pair, the prayer, the promise, and the process. The pair, that would be. 
the couple, the prayer, the prayer that the angel speaks of in verse 13, the promise, they would have a promise of a son, and then the process, which is always the fun part, right? The process. The first four sentences here, I've really kind of, my introduction really is about the first few sentences and inclusive of the whole book of Luke. So I wanted you to have a background of the book, a background of Luke, how this came about. Again, the Holy Spirit certainly was the one that uh, compelled Luke to write it, but the first four sentences, knowing that Luke was highly educated himself, him and the Apostle Paul could certainly have a classical Greek discussion. Both were highly educated, both of them, but uh, you know, they also both had a heart and compassion for people, uh, which God distinctly does in the life of someone who maybe has come from the good things in life and really doesn't care that much about you know, people that are down and out or dying. But once they come to Christ, God changes their vision and they really start to look and care for people that they used to not notice. Well, I believe that this is probably true of Luke. Whenever Luke had come to know the Lord, uh, again, he probably was one of these guys, and because of his academic background, he just always wanted to learn more stuff. Tell me everything you know about, tell me what you saw, tell me what you saw. Let me document it all. Good physicians are supposed to document every time that you meet with them, right? Good ones. Didn't I tell you last? No, but anyway... Luke documents all these things, but the first few verses here, uh, they're written, the first four verses are written as a single sentence in the original Greek. Uh, They're written in a refined, academic, and classic style. But then the whole rest of the book is written for the common man in common language as if he's just taking the testimony and writing it in to his account. Testifying that Luke could say to the very well-to-do Roman aristocrat, I speak your language, but let me tell you, the things that took place in Jerusalem with Jesus, this common carpenter, are fact. And you must pay attention. Your very soul depends on you paying attention. Did you know that the rest of the world is focused on Black Friday and all the sales and getting more stuff and focused on all the things that are out there that their very soul depends on those first few letters of Christmas? C-H-R-I-S-T. They'll go right past it, won't they? Most of the people. Right past it. They think it says Santa at the beginning or something, right? But their very soul depends on the certainty of what is written and the testimony of this book and the other Gospels. Well, let's take a look at this faithful seasons. He begins with the life of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. This pair, this couple... Um, what a beautiful uh, Jewish couple they are. Um, now, he tells us that this takes place in verse 5, that there was in the days of Herod. So Luke, being very meticulous, gives us even the time frame. He starts, this is not only just Herod, this is in fact the time of Herod the Great. Uh, remember if in past studies, I've told you a little bit about Herod the Great and Herod the Great. Uh, he did build great buildings, including the temple, the magnificent temple, even far more grand than the original one built by Solomon. And I've, when I've been to Jerusalem and, and had a chance to see the scale model that was built to the whole city, you see how that temple just dwarfed the city, just massive, um, just, just 
a beautiful structure. Herod built these great things, but he also built them because uh, he always wanted to endear himself to the complete loyalty of the religious uh, aristocracy. But at the same time, he had pulled close the people of power to himself, but he also, he used both carrot and stick. And when he used stick, he used it in a really cruel manner. He was a very cruel uh, king. Uh, He killed many in his own family, paranoid uh, that they could actually take the throne from him. So he had no problem putting anybody to death for any reason. Uh, But at the same time, he also built some strong allies. Uh, But his cruel reign was nearing an end uh, when when, uh, Zacharias and um, Elizabeth uh, find this great news that we're going to read about in just a second. But his uh, kingdom was coming closer to an end. And then you have, again, this testimony of Elizabeth and Zacharias. It says in verse 6, they were both righteous before God. Both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord's Lord, blameless. We also know that they were both of the lineage of the house of Levi. They were both of the priestly lineage. Of course, you couldn't be a priest uh, unless you were a Levite. Uh, And both uh, him and his wife, uh, she was one of the daughters of Aaron. But not only were they uh, of the lineage of priests, but they walked in the purity of the priesthood. What a great testimony wouldn't you like that to be written? Those of you that are married, of you and your spouse, that if anyone described you, had they had to write about you uh, at the end of your life, and they would write, uh, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments. Ordinance, Lord, blameless. What a testimony. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit's testimony, but it was also the eyewitness accounts of people that Luke talked to. Anyone that he talked to, tell me what you know about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Unbelievable. Loving, caring, kind. She didn't even have children, and yet she was a mother to people. We actually see a little bit of her character in the way she kind of mothers Mary, don't we? Well before she had any children. You know, I love to see when people that are, that are elderly or if seasoned, in the, seasoned in the Lord or seasoned saint, they give back and pour into younger believers. Even if their kids are all grown and they only have grandchildren that live in Arizona, you'll see these faithful saints in the church ministering to people, using what God has done in their life to build up and equip other saints. And I believe this is clearly the way that Elizabeth and John, Elizabeth and Zacharias both lived. By the way, when you read this passage in the, I have a Jewish Bible, it's so beautiful when you read their names and Adonai and all the, it just really, really flows I encourage you to check that out as well. But this walking is uh, the walking in the commandments of the Lord. This also indicates something else, that even as they progressed in life, when you're walking, you're always moving forward. Everybody here is either falling back or moving forward in their faith. But they were walking, moving, still growing in the Lord after all these years, still maturing. And we're going to see, even when we get to the, the final bullet point process, Yes, God was not done doing a work in them, and He's not done in you. I don't care how old you are or how long you've been walking with the Lord. He wants you to continue to walk 
and to grow and to more purify your walk to the point where when people would look at you, you're not actually sinless, but blameless. You're not actually perfect, but you're faithful. You see the difference? Blameless doesn't mean sinless, necessarily. But again, that people would have no public thing to point at and say, that's a life of hypocrisy. Quite the opposite. That God would do a work in us that would continue to grow us, continue to mature us, that even people that might not love our Savior would still look and say, but I tell you one thing, their walk is genuine. Now, they certainly had different roles. Zacharias was a priest. Elizabeth couldn't be a priest. She could be the wife of a priest, but she could not be a priest. She would have her role to be the support to her husband, right? But he would have a role that would be very public, to represent the people, um, that he would actually be given access uh, to discussions with other priests that, that, that she would not be a part of, that he would actually have a responsibility as a priest that she would not have that same responsibility. Though they had different roles, though you and your spouse or even the kids that are here, all of us have different roles, God wants us to be faithful in them. And not only that, when we see their different roles, him being a priest, her being a wife, they, you see that they're, the way that Luke describes them, it's as they really look like one flesh, don't they? It's not like she could go in with him the day he had to go and offer the incense, but in spirit she's with him, wouldn't you think? That there's a oneness in their relationship, a very beautiful oneness. They remind me of Abraham and Sarah. Very similar. Abraham and Sarah were advanced in age, and they also did not have any children. But they would have a great son too, wouldn't they? That they thought might never happen. And Elizabeth and Zachariah thought might never happen. You know, people that deal with a lifetime of disappointment and wondering, I wonder why God hasn't done such and so in my life. Isn't it interesting that the people who really love God don't complain about it, but press on in the faith? Isn't it interesting? There's other people that would have long given up on God because Elizabeth, she was barren and she bore reproach. She says so in the 25th verse. She bore reproach among the people. Some people might even say, you guys are really godly, but you've got to ask yourself why he hasn't given any kids like us. That would be the prideful look, right, of people looking at them from a distance. But like Abraham and Sarah, they remain faithful even without children. They would humbly serve the Lord even if God never gave them. That was, in the Jewish culture, children meant everything. I know a lot of Americans today, I used to work with a, a colleague uh, when I was in business who him and his wife made the determination they would not have children. And I would ask him, matter of fact, he was Jewish, by the way. I would ask him, why would you not have kids? And he would always say, no kids, clean carpet. No kids, clean carpet. Even the Bible says that. Where, well, where, where there's no oxen, the trough is clean. But children are heritage to the Lord. No kids, no legacy. Now, if you can't have children, that doesn't mean you can't have a legacy. God can give you spiritual children. Amen? And Elizabeth and, and Zacharias were okay with that. They would be a father and mother figure to the community and the people around them, but they still would have loved to have their own, and yet they didn't and continued to faithfully serve. 
Well, then we see that it's his turn, or it's his time, to go in. Uh, he, was, uh, he was serving. They had periods of time where the priest would have specific duties in the temple, and he had a period of time where he's serving as a priest in the order. So the priests were, were kind of put in divisions, and his division, it was his division's uh, turn to take care of everything in the priesthood, everything. The courtyard, everything that had to do, we, we were in Exodus and we looked at all the different elements. So the division, it would be like all of a sudden, division X comes and now for these amount of days, you guys, all of you in this division are responsible. But then the responsibilities were not just said given out, they were cast lots for different things. Over the years, the numbers of priests multiplied to the point that it is said at the time of Jesus, there was as many as 20,000 priests. And they used these lots to determine which priests would serve in which functions. The lot, served, uh, the, uh, the lot to serve in the time uh, of specific functions might only fall to a priest once in their entire lifetime. There were lots for different functions, such as sprinkling the altar with the blood. This took place with both the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, the lighting of the menorah, or also the golden lampstand, the burning of the incense, which is what uh, Zacharias does here. The burning of the incense was considered the most privileged responsibility to be given. And the incense here was offered to God on the golden altar every morning and every evening. But if your lot fell to do the burning of incense, unlike if, you, if the lot fell upon you, and even if only once in your entire lifetime you got to light the lamps, or once in your lifetime you got to uh, anoint the altar with blood, you would do that both morning and evening, but not if the incense fell. You would only get morning or evening. It was considered that much of a high honor that if you got the incense, you would not do morning and evening, you would only do one of the two. Now this is, uh, the, the, if you remember, this took place on the golden altar. We read about this back in Exodus chapter 30 in our, the study we just completed. But it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and you would have to go into the holy place, and you better not go in with sin, right? You better be prayed up, cleansed, and ready to go into the holy place. Not the holy of holies. That was only once a year at the Day of Atonement, but into the holy place, and there was the golden incense, and there was the big, huge curtain that was right there dividing the holy place from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant, but the altar of incense would have been right here in front of, right in front of the big curtain that, that later Jesus would uh, tear in two uh, when he died on the cross. But the incense would go up there, and that is where the priest would offer the incense and the prayers for the people. Now, what would take place when Zacharias would go into the holy place? He wouldn't actually go alone. He would go with two other priests, one on each side. The three would walk in together. He would be in the center with two priests on either side walking in. And what would take place is all three priests would enter the holy place together. One priest would set the burning coals on the altar. Uh, the other priest would then arrange the incense so it was ready to go. And then those two priests would leave, and only one left would be, in this case, Zacharias. The other two priests would leave. They would arrange, get it all ready on the altar, and he would wait patiently. Then they would leave, and he would be the one, as the incense is going up, 
offering the prayer for all the people. And there's Zacharias. You, you wonder, remember this is, in most cases, no priest got to go in more than once. And you talk about a knee-knocking thing. You're about to walk into the holy place. You've only heard about it. You've never seen it. A fraction of people in all the world history have ever been in the holy place. A tiny hundredth of a one percent of all of humanity has ever been in there. And even of the priesthood, it was rare to even get in. And here he is. And it isn't interesting that God chooses this time, just before Jesus' coming, what a coincidence, huh? That God says, here's how it's going to go. The lot's going to fall. You're going in to make a prayer. You're going the one who's going to get the offer of incense, but you're going to get to hear a lot more from me than you think. And here he is wondering, I wonder what it's like in there. I wonder if the Holy Presence will knock me to the ground. I wonder what it will be like. I wonder if I'll feel the presence of God. I wonder, did I confess every single sin? And there he goes, in, all alone. Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The psalmist understood that as the incense goes up, it's a picture of prayer, and he's going in there to offer up this holy prayer on behalf of the people. As he's in there, outside, as the text tells us, and this was the custom, a multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. When, when they saw the two priests come out of the holy place, then the people would get on their face with their hands outstretched and be completely silent because prayers were going up in the exact prescribed manner as God said in the Old Testament as he gave to Moses and everybody would be not a pin drop. And they had to wait that way because he stayed longer than normal. But he had an unusual thing take place, didn't he? While he was in there. This, we see a similar thing you know, when our prayers are going up. When our prayers are going up, God hears them. And I want to draw your attention back to the 13th verse. He goes in there. He's praying. The angel appears to him. And he says, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. This has always fascinated me, this verse. The text sets up. You go back to the previous verses. The text sets up in verse 7 that they were with child. With, they had no child. They were well advanced in years. Telling us that this, is, this was a significant thing in their life. And we know from the 25th verse that for, uh, for Elizabeth, it was a reproach for her. So this weighed on them for many years. If there was, it does not say, what the angel does not say is, it does not say your prayer of the people is heard. Now again, I don't know, I actually think it speaks to both things. But I've, I've always been fascinated by this verse. If there was one prayer, I guarantee you, Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed many, 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 many times over the years. It was, please give us a son. Please give us a son. We know that Abraham and Sarah constantly, Lord, when will we have a son? Please give us a son. Please give us a son. And the angel says, your prayer has been heard. 
What if they hadn't prayed that prayer in 30 years? You ever had a prayer you prayed a long time and you forgot about it? Every prayer ever prayed while you were walking with the Lord has never been forgotten by God. Not the one that you prayed when you were 13, not the one that you prayed when you were 26, not the one you prayed five years ago that you forgot you ever prayed until you looked in your prayer journal and said, wow, I forgot I prayed that. Everyone God has it in a bowl. Every single God-honoring, led by the Spirit prayer, he has not forgotten a single one of them. Now, we have no way of knowing what the angel's saying here. I'm only telling you that the text sets up that they have a burden. Uh, He goes in to pray for the people, and he's shocked that the angel is not talking necessarily about the people. He says, I've heard your prayer, and you're going to have a son. Isn't that awesome? God has never forgotten any prayer. You know, I've got some texts that kind of support the way that I look at this. In the book of Acts, Cornelius, he was the Gentile uh, leader. He tells Peter, when Peter comes, Peter doesn't want to go see him, God says, you're going to go see Cornelius. When he goes to see him, Cornelius says, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. In the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Sound familiar? Zacharias had the exact same experience. All of a sudden, an angel appeared. But what the angel tells Cornelius is that, And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered in the sight of God. He said, I was praying. I was done praying. And the angel comes and says, God remembered everything you prayed. Again, God doesn't forget the sincerity and purity of genuine prayer. Days later, hours later, weeks later, years later. Your prayer has been heard and you shall, look what it says, go back to the 13th verse. He does not say, your prayer has been heard and God will bless Israel. What does the angel say? Your prayer has been heard and you and Elizabeth will bear a son. And he's like, "Uh, I wasn't praying that. I was praying for you to forgive the people of their sins and to bless the house of Israel. And God says, I'm going to do that when I answer your old prayer, I'm also going to answer your current prayer in the same breath. John is the answer to the prayer he was praying and the answer to the prayer he had prayed long ago. Do you understand? God says that prayer that you forgot praying is actually directly linked to the current prayer you're praying. You're praying right now that I will bless Israel and that I will cleanse them from their sins. I'm going to do that and wait till you hear how I'm going to do it. That son you've been praying about, or, for, or long stop praying about, is going to be part of how I'm going to cleanse the nation. What would John end up preaching? Repentance and the remission of sins. Exactly what the priest was praying for. The Lord hears our prayers. The personal ones. But again, if we're walking in the Lord, I'm a pastor. I pray for my own family, but I pray for the church family. God can link the two together and often does. Amen? In your family. You pray for your personal family, you pray for the extended family, you pray for the nation. When God brings revival to your house, guess what? It touches the nation. They're linked together. Let's look at the promise here. We know he hears the prayer. 
Verse 14, here's the promise. Well, it starts in verse 13. Elizabeth will bear a son, you'll call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. Don't you want the promise of joy in your life and gladness in your life? You're going to have joy and gladness and many, not everyone though, Herod's not going to like the birth of John the Baptist. The relatives of Herod won't like the birth of John the Baptist. But many will rejoice in his birth. Your answered prayers will bring joy to you, but they may not bring joy to everybody else. Amen? For he shall be great in sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You know, when I read this, can you imagine... uh, You have to love the Lord for this stuff to be good news. Can you imagine an unsaved couple that's living for all this world? They're living for the pleasures of this world. They're living for the popularity of this world. They're living for the acceptance of this world. This world is their home. Can you imagine if an angel appeared to them and said this? They'd be like, what? That's the worst news we've ever heard. Our son's going to be a preacher. He's not even going to get a drink wine. He's not going to go to a four-year school. He's going to live in a desert, wear camel skin, and eat locust. People will think we're weird. And we've built a lifetime on proving to people we're not weird. We're cool. We have four degrees. We're, we're something in the community. This kid will make us look like the laughing stock. But not if you're godly. Amen? If you're godly, this is actually good news. This would not be good news to 90% of Americans. They're like, we, we were hoping you would say our son would grow up to be president. We were hoping your son, you'd say our son would be the CEO of the largest company on earth. We were hoping you'd say our son would make millions of dollars. No, and if the angel told the whole story, he's not going to live that long. He's going to be beheaded. The angel doesn't say any of that because right now this is just a time for joy. Amen? All you need to know is he's going to bring about salvation to many. Why? Because in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. He'll turn them to the Lord. This is not what a, God, this is not what a worldly couple would want to hear. Only a Christian couple, only those of you that love the Lord want to hear it, and your son will someday be a missionary. There's many Christian couples that do not want to hear that from God. They netted never something they want to hear. He's what? That means he won't live in Virginia. Correct. Lord, you must have it all wrong. If you really love me, we would never have that kind of calling. But not when you love the Lord. Abraham and Sarah, Elizabeth and Zacharias, they're okay with God's plan. Whose plan really is it in your life, yours or God's? But he was in there and his prayer was sincere. When you pray a sincere prayer, you better expect, so if you pray, God, I want your will in my life, you better mean it. Amen? You better mean it. Now, you can trust it because he loves and cares for you. But if he loves and cares for you, his will is not what you want necessarily. And usually it isn't. But if you pray sincerely, if Zacharias says, Lord, I'm here, I'm praying for the people, please turn the hearts of the people to Israel. And God says, that son you've been praying for, 
I'm going to let him do it. And I'm going to fill him with the Holy Spirit. How about this? He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. There is no limitations on what God can do. Amen? He can fill a baby with the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into the doctrinal implications of that. But we see it in the Old Testament too with some of the prophets. God actually knows everyone who he's called and everyone who will receive him. Amen? He fills a baby with the Holy Spirit. So much so that later when Elizabeth and, and uh, Mary get together, the babe leaps, doesn't he? Inside of Elizabeth's womb. This prayer, this promise, this promise that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you'll have joy, that he'll turn many uh, to the Lord, and he will be in the spirit of Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet to the men and women of God to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Do you realize what that says in verse 17? To turn, to turn the hearts of the fathers to children. Do you realize that's the last thing God said in the Tanakh, the very last thing in the Old Testament before 400 years of silence? That's it right there. You talk about a long time of waiting for the prayer. God says, not only has your prayer been a long time, I've been silent for 400 years, but I'm speaking to you right now in the holy place, and the holy place and saying, the prayer will be answered. You will have a godly son. He'll only serve me. He'll never drink wine. He won't need wine because he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers back to children. Isn't that awesome? That's the promise. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. The promises that God makes us are for His glory. 1 Thessalonians 5.4, He who calls you is faithful and will also do it. These are the promises. Last, the process as we come to a close this morning. The process. And Zechariah, you know, God actually knows how this is going to go down. Do you agree? He knew how this was going to go down. Gabriel, head to the holy place. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Just show up, and Zacharias is going to have his mouth open. It's going to hit the ground. What do you want me to say? Just tell him your prayer has been heard. Which prayer? He'll know. Well, what if he doesn't know? Well, he won't know at first. He'll think I'm... T- but he'll get the whole picture as you stand there and talk to him. Then tell him he's going to have a son. Okay? He's having a son. Then remember, Gabriel doesn't know the mind of God. God has to tell Gabriel he's going to have a son. Yes, he's going to have a son. His name will be Zacharias, right? In the tradition of... Nope. That, normally, you would name him Zacharias. That's not... Name him John. Okay. Um, how do you think he'll receive this? Him and, him, and, uh, him and Elizabeth are very, very old. He's not going to really understand what you said, so tell him he's going to be mute. All right. Remember, angels don't just make it up as they go. They're told by the Lord what to say. So Gabriel knows, God says, you're going to say this, he'll say this. Then you say this, then he'll say this, then you tell him you're going to be mute. That doesn't seem like a loving response, does it? The process. And Zachariah said, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, my wife is well advanced years. And the angel Gabriel answered and said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. 
My next glad tidings is you will be mute and not unable, unable to speak for the entire pregnancy. Gee, I came in here with no sin. I've been praying for years. All I did was, who wouldn't ask this question? Would you ask the question? Yeah. It's part of the process. God is not angry with Zacharias, but there's just some more work to be done. Whatever's going on in your life, it doesn't mean that God is necessarily angry with you. If you're in sin, he's not happy. But if you're not in sin, and yet things are still not going exactly the way you thought they would go, it's part of the process. Amen? He understands that we don't understand everything. And sometimes keeping our mouths shut is best for us. Isn't it? Zacharias, you have a lot to learn about what just took place in a matter of a short period of time. Let the next nine months meditate on it. I'm going to teach you a lot. You might over-proclaim what you heard. You might under-proclaim what you heard. You might misinterpret what you heard. Let the next nine months just be quiet. Love your wife. She's borne reproach for years. And just let me work through the process. God's not angry with him. I don't believe. But he does get a little correction. Even if you've been walking with the Lord, God says, your faith can still grow. There was, there was a lack of faith there, wasn't there? A little bit. I mean, it is, after all, an angel. And he, is, he says, I stand in the presence of God, so there's no reason to doubt God. But the longer, here's another thing about the correction of God. The more mature you are in the Lord, the longer you've been walking with the Lord, the more responsibility God places upon you. Remember Moses smites the rock? How did that go? No promised land. You know that? If you look at the lives of people, even in the world, that have achieved some great level of success, let's say in sports or business, almost invariably, when you watch their biographies, those one-hour specials on the History Channel or on ESPN Classic or something, I, if I had a dime for every time I've heard something like this, such-and-so coach or teacher was so hard on me Never gave me an inch, but I realized later that they loved me the most. How many times have you heard that? And I would never be where I'm at today if it wasn't for such and so cute. Guess what? God is more than a coach and a teacher. Zacharias will be all that God wants him to be because God knows him better than he knows him. And it's part of the process of God shaping and molding that says you'll be mute for these years. The people, it'll, God will use your correction and your comfort and your completion and your chastening also in relate to everybody, because he comes out, he can't speak to the people, and now they have to wonder what happened, but they have to go and talk to the Lord themselves. And then you have Elizabeth. She hid herself for five months. The Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me. She hid herself for five months. This wasn't even easy for her. To, I'm, I'm an older lady. I'm going to walk around pregnant. How do I deal with this? At some point, she comes out of that. Because pregnancies are longer than five months, correct? Part of that process is God finally 
whether it was a time of rejoicing, whether it was a time of adjustment, but sometimes you just need to get along with God, don't you? And it's interesting that both of these who had a public, she would have had a public pregnancy, he had a public ministry, God gives them both this silent time with the Lord. Sealing them and sanctifying their life for the birth of John the Baptist, which again, we're out of time, but God tells us in his word in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Not all afflictions are, some afflictions are just confusing times, difficult times, rejoicing. All of it, whatever it is, I was reading a a little thing about, um, or from Elizabeth Elliot, and she was talking about in one of her uh, writings that everywhere you're at, in every moment of life, you're in a classroom with the Lord. Right now today, December the 1st, you're in God's classroom. Tomorrow you'll be in God's classroom. Tuesday you'll be in God's classroom. Wednesday you'll be in God's classroom. And every day is part of the process of making you and shaping you and molding you and conforming you to the image of Christ. Sometimes God will do things like you're scratching your head and say, this doesn't make any sense. Other times you'll say, wow, this is such a blessing, Lord. Right? Zacharias went in. What a blessing. Angels news, that's awesome. Now how's that going to happen? Oh, now it's correction time again. And such the cycle goes in our life, amen? The cycle continues. Next week, correction. After that, comfort. Then rejoicing. Then back to correction again. How many of your parents? You ever seen this cycle? If you have kids? But you know what? They're still maturing and growing as we are led by the Lord. Let's close in prayer.